This week on Daiwa, we're in Davis County. A disagreement between two livestock farmers turns fatal. Welcome to Daiwa, the first Iowa-focused true crime podcast, where there's 99 counties and a murder in every one. These are your hosts, Beth LaValle and Allie Tulin. Okay, Davis County. How do we feel about Davis County? Okay, I have officially never been to Davis County. How do you feel about it? I like the idea of it. I don't know if I've ever been. I truly (laughs) don't know. I've definitely been to Ottumwa, but I don't think that's technically Davis County. But there are some really unique things about the county. I'm ready. So I'm going to start with my fun fact, which is that there's a big Amish population here. There's currently about 300 Amish families in Davis County, which is the largest population in the entire state of Iowa. So I'm going to talk about the Amish for an unreasonably long amount of time. (laughs) Go for it. 100% honesty, I didn't know a ton about the Amish. Like, is that, are you familiar? A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like the only thing I knew was that they didn't use technology. Right. Okay. So for anyone out there that knows a lot about Amish history, just like skip ahead if you need to. So the Amish are a group of traditionalist Christians, and they typically have Swiss German and Alsatian, I'm going to say, origins, which Alsatia again, don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, is a region in eastern France. So they all come from relatively the same area in Europe. And basically, Amish people live together because they have a set of core values and beliefs that they all believe in. They value rural life, manual labor, humility, and the submission to God's will. So because of that, they tend to dress simply, they create many of their own goods and services, and they tend to be slow to adopt modern conveniences. Safe to say, they probably aren't listening to this podcast right now. (laughs) But if they are, we'd love to hear from someone in the Amish community. That'd be cool. That'd be cool. And the whole slow adoption to technology thing comes from really valuing family time and face-to-face conversations. And these rules come from these gatherings. They gather together to review rules of the church twice a year, and then they decide what can and cannot be done in the community. So while I was looking this up, I was like, wow, that sounds pretty nice. Like face-to-face conversations and valuing family. I'm all about that. Having my own woodworking shop, I could get on board with that. (laughs) So I was kind of curious if anyone could just join this community at any time. And the short answer is yes, they can. Oh. So while the Amish do not seek to add outsiders to their church, like many other Christian sectors... What do you call that? Yeah, that makes sectors are like Christian-based faiths or like, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, so they allow anyone to join. Oh, wait, no, that's not what I was saying. Yeah, they allow anyone to join, but they don't seek, they don't try to recruit. Yes, so outsiders that want to join, they have to demonstrate genuine conversion, and they usually have to be living among the Amish before they're converted, and they also have to demonstrate genuine faith that results in a changed lifestyle. So as you probably guessed, this doesn't happen often because it's extremely difficult for someone that hasn't been raised with electricity, cars, or other modern conveniences to adjust to the lifestyle. And back to Davis County, there are over 90 Amish businesses, including woodworking, grocery, blankets, bakeries, and more. And that's kind of the short gist of it. 
Very cool. Um, so my fun fact, because I'm also really enjoying researching Davis County, is that right at the start of the Civil War, after the fall of Fort Sumter, President Lincoln requested 75,000 volunteers to defend the Union. And within a day of receiving the news, a big crowd gathered at the Methodist Church in Bloomfield, Iowa, and they organized a makeshift army, passing out handbills that said, quote, the stars and stripes must be protected and the laws enforced. So Iowa joined the Union in 1846, but almost 15 years later, Davis County retained a reputation for the rough-and-ready frontier behavior of its people. And right around this time, Jefferson Davis, who had been a prominent senator from Mississippi and the Secretary of War, became president of the Confederacy. And the people of Davis County were eager to prove that Davis County was not in fact named after him, but was actually named after Representative Garrett Davis of Kentucky, who had helped compensate Iowa militia services in the 1830s. So if you're from Davis County, be sure to let us know what you think of the, if this description fits your friends and neighbors. I, I hope that Davis County residents still feel like the frontier rough and ready people. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm, I'm imagining the Ukrainians that are just like civilians right. defending their nation. It's crazy. Okay, so we are a true crime podcast, so I guess we have to get to the murder for today. And we are in the 1950s, 1953 to be exact. What, since I know you love movies, is your favorite movie from the 1950s? Tough question, but I think it's got to be Roman Holiday. Like 1953, Audrey Hepburn, Gregory Peck, would recommend. All right. I don't think I've seen that one. Oh, Beth, like tonight. I've got so many movies on my list. Do you have one? 1950s? I feel like my old movie, my love of old movies starts at 1970 or late 1960s. Okay. That's okay. 1950s is a little early for me. All good. I can see the <laughs> <laughs> Um, So 1953. Just to set the scene, some fun events that happened in 1953. Uh, Hugh Hefner published the first Playboy magazine, which had a nude Marilyn Monroe right in the centerfold. Crazy. For the more scholarly folks out there, Ian Fleming also published his first James Bond novel, which was Casino Royale. And I'm just going to make people mad for just a hot minute here. The average wage in 1953 was $3,750, and the average house cost $17,400. Adjusted for inflation today, that would be like someone's wage being $39,487, and the average house would cost $183,220. Oh my god. That's a lot of numbers, but moral of the story, the average home in the U.S. today costs $374,900, so it's there's a gap there. There's a gap. <laughs> and that's as political as we're ever going to get, I think. Insane. Well, like Beth said, it's 1953, and there were two farmers, Walter M. Mayer and John Wisdom. And let's talk about these characters. According to the Gazette, John Wisdom was a well-known 51-year-old Midwest Hereford cattle raiser and livestock dealer. He had once operated one of the largest sheep and cattle yards in Des Moines, and he had a 900-some acre farm near Bloomfield. However, in 1950, John was involved in a bankruptcy lawsuit that was brought against him by 27 Iowa livestock dealers, and he quickly ran out of money. His debts were listed at over $400,000. The other man, Walter M. Mayer, 
was one of the most prominent sheep and cattle farmers in the Southwest. He was originally from Massachusetts, but then he joined the military in World War I, came back to America, and settled in Santa Fe, New Mexico. He had a lot of land in New Mexico, and he had lived there for about 30 years. He also had livestock headquartered in Greencastle, Missouri. He and his wife were both pretty active in their Santa Fe community and were on the city council. They were both prominent Republicans in the area. So these two knew of each other because Wisdom had sold some livestock to Mayer, and Wisdom kept a large number of sheep and cattle at his farm to winter them, basically take care of them for Mayer. I'm, I'm not a livestock person, I'm not a farmer, but cattle apparently prefer colder temperatures to warm ones, so I don't know if that's Weird. what they mean by winter, or if he was just taking care of them and they call it wintering. Anyways, huh. it doesn't matter. When Wisdom hit hard times, he had sold some of his livestock without the authorization of Mayer, and then on top of that did not give Mayer his full share of the sale. So Mayer ended up asking him about this, and Wisdom offered to settle, but it was apparently thousands of dollars less than the amount actually owed. So Mayer consulted an attorney about this, and the attorney said, quote, I told him to accept the offer and get the rest of the sheep and cattle from him and let it go at that. So on Saturday, May 2nd, Mayer called Wisdom and agreed to meet on a highway near Wisdom's farm in Davis County, Iowa. According to Wisdom's son, the meeting was arranged at the highway because Wisdom was afraid Mayer might get stuck on the county road. On that day, they met, discussed the deal, but things got a little more heated than anticipated. According to Mayer, Wisdom, who was much larger than Mayer, had threatened to kill him. Wisdom then reached towards his hip, and Mayer got scared that he was reaching for a gun, so Mayer pulled out his thirty-eight caliber pistol and shot him twice in the chest. Still frightened, Mayer got in his truck and drove off. When he arrived in Missouri, he called an attorney and then Sheriff Grossnickel in Kirksville and told him what happened. According to the Des Moines Register, on the phone to Sheriff Grossnickel, he said he, quote, had shot a man, he threatened to kill me. Mayer calmly agreed to everything the police asked of him. He turned over his gun and continued claiming he was acting in self-defense after Wisdom threatened to kill him. Mayer was then charged with first-degree murder. He pleaded not guilty and was released on a $75,000 bond until trial. The trial began on October 29, 1953, and lasted until November 24th. It was a fairly simple case. The jury had to decide if Walter Mayer shot and killed John Wisdom in self-defense. Mayer's attorney stated at one point, Quote, Mayor being a man from New Mexico, figured that when a man reaches for his hip, he's going for his gun. However, Wisdom didn't have any weapon on him. There was a briefcase found near the body, which contained some correspondence between Mayor and Wisdom. There was no animosity between the two in that correspondence. Mayor stayed pretty quiet in the months leading up to the trial. According to the Des Moines Register, he said that his attorney advised him not to answer any questions. However, his attorney did make several comments for him, saying, quote, I think he shot in self-defense. The fact that he surrendered indicates this. Maybe Wisdom didn't have a gun when he reached for his hip, but how did Mare know this? After all, he threatened to kill Mare. It was confirmed at the trial that there was no other attack. Mayer did not have any cuts or bruises on him at the time of the shooting, and the autopsy showed no other rough play other than the two bullets. There were two witnesses that really helped Mayer's case. Glenn and Paul Davis of Atlantic, who were brothers. They both testified that Wisdom had threatened to kill Mayer on multiple occasions. Glenn Davis said Wisdom told him he was going to, quote, shoot Mayer's head off, 
And another time he said, quote, I'll shoot Mayer so goddamn full of holes he will look like a sieve, to name a few. Glenn also testified that Wisdom was carrying a revolver at the time he made the threat in Atumwa and showed them that revolver by pulling back his coat and patting his right hip pocket. Paul Davis also said he heard those two threats and added that Wisdom owed him about $12,000 since 1940. This testimony was, quote, strenuously objected by the prosecutor, according to the Des Moines Tribune, but the judge overruled the objections and allowed the jury to hear the testimony. Mayor himself also testified. He continued to claim that he acted in self-defense, and according to the Carroll Daily Times-Herald, he said that when he met Wisdom the morning of the shooting, Wisdom, quote, talked and acted in such a manner that I thought he must have gone crazy. Some newspapers report that Wisdom also charged at Mayor, but others didn't mention that, so we're not sure if it's true. On November 24th, the jury of nine men and three women deliberated for only an hour and 19 minutes before deciding that Mayer acted in self-defense and was not guilty of first-degree murder. According to the Albuquerque Journal, after the trial, Mayer told reporters, quote, I had a lot of confidence during the trial, despite all the stuff they pulled. People are pretty honest. They could see through it. But it was persecution, not prosecution. Except for a few people who will stop at nothing, the people here are wonderful. I knew the people would believe me when I said I shot in self-defense. I wasn't mad at wisdom, but I felt I had to defend myself. Walter Mayer and his wife arrived home in Santa Fe on Thanksgiving Day. During the trial, there was an auction for the cattle and machinery at the Wisdom Farm. They raised $16,518 to settle his estate. The 918-acre farm was sold for $105,000. And the next time we see Walter M. Mayer in the newspapers, it sounds like he's having a great time, because there's a picture of him at a pretty sophisticated backyard party, and this is the headline. Parties continue apace as summer season approaches rapidly. Walter Mayer passed away in 1979 at the age of 81 from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. According to one of his sons, married terminal cancer at the time. His wife, Catherine, passed away at age 80 in 1985. John Wisdom is buried in the Bloomfield IOOF Cemetery. So I've got some questions for Taps on this one. Are you ready to give him a call? Let's do it. Hey, Tabs, thanks for joining. Hello. We are doing Davis County. Have you ever been? I have been to Davis County maybe only once. I flew over it once because Lake Rathburn is just to the west of there. And I was flying a helicopter and I was a little concerned about being over that much open water with a helicopter. But no, it's one of my least visited counties in Iowa. Okay. Can I ask what you were doing flying a helicopter over there? Does (laughs) that give away too much information? I was just ferrying a helicopter from one place to another. You were transporting a helicopter? Yeah. Okay, that is craziness. How do you get a helicopter from point A to point B? Yeah, you fly it over. You're right. You fly it from point A to point B. What would happen if you went down in a body of water in a helicopter? You probably better know how to swim. Could Would there be an escape time? Well, it depends on how you went down, I assume. But yeah, you could. I mean, if you auto-rotated into a 
body of water, you might have a chance to get out and you blew your doors before you hit the water. And it just depends on how you, you went in. Interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, so I guess this one doesn't actually count as a murder. Um, so since he got off on self-defense, is there a technical term for what you would call how John Wisdom died? Well, I mean, it's a homicide. Okay. It's a, it's a killing of a human by another human, but he just wasn't criminally guilty of it. Would it's you call not. it an accidental homicide? No, it's not accidental. It's just a self-defense homicide. Okay. Um, have you seen a lot of farmer disputes since you're in Iowa and you covered law in Iowa? Back in the 80s, constantly, when the farm crisis was going on, there were plenty, but there still are to this day. There's always you know, some kind of dispute. It's like everything else in the normal course of business. You're just going to have those kinds of things. Can you talk briefly about the farm crisis in the eighties? Well, I mean, that was when, uh, you know, the retention retrenchment of the economy and all these farmers were holding lots of debt because land had been continuing to go up, you know, almost meteorically for the last 10 or 15 years. And then when it suddenly stopped and you farm economy slowed, they all owed lots of money to lenders. And the lenders began to go out and perfect, you know, their mortgages or liens upon the farmers. And it was a pretty, it was a pretty rough time in the Midwest because there were a lot of people that lost their farms and lost their livelihood. This question came about because Walter Mayer was known as a well-known guy, a very professional guy, a very calm guy. So do you think that mannerisms like clothing or how people look affect the outcome of a trial? Oh, absolutely. Why do I mean, that's why defense attorneys don't want their clients sitting in court with shackles on their legs and orange jumpsuits. You know, just the, the viewing of that tells the jury, this guy's guilty of something. So yeah, appearance means a lot. Is there any specific advice you give for people that go on trial? Um, When I represented people, you know, I always told them best behavior, limit the nonverbal stuff, you know, don't shake your head when witnesses are testifying, you know, or, or sit there and roll your eyes and things like that, because juries and judges pay attention to that. Yeah, even the media pays attention to that, like we've seen quite a few comments. How many true self-defense cases have you seen where one person actually dies? Uh, I, I don't know a number. I'm sure it's in the maybe a hundred. I don't know. Um, it's a lot more than I was would assume. You, I mean, it, it's fairly frequent that people are acquitted because of self-defense. And especially I did a lot of officer-involved shootings where, uh, you know, officers shot somebody or whatever. And and, you know, and most of those cases were considered self-defense because the officer was protecting themselves or others. So it happens fairly frequently. So in, in this case, he still had, he got off on self-defense and then he had to go on another trial to see if he owed any money to the Wisdom family. Is that common? And then what do you see the outcome most often from those cases? So it's fairly common because what you have are two trials and two separate branches of the judicial system. One is in the criminal system 
where of course the the evidence is given to the jury or the judge and somebody has to be found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. The second part of it is in a civil trial in which somebody owed money to another person and now the burden or the uh, evidentiary standard is a preponderance of the evidence. Did this guy most likely owe this money to this person or not? Um, you'll even see criminal trials, especially with car wrecks and things like drunk drivers and stuff where there's a criminal trial first on the drunk driving or whatever and then there's a civil trial on the tort claim of you know they injured this person or whatever by negligence or willful wanton negligence so it's fairly frequent if somebody actually threatened to kill you what would you recommend they do if it was a serious i'm going to kill you so i guess i don't understand really your question if somebody threatens to kill you what would you recommend to them? Yeah. I guess if they threatened to kill you, they should try to kill you. Is that the recommendation? No, I'm asking. <laughs> You're asking how should somebody act if somebody's threatening to kill them? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Well, obviously, if you can retreat, that is the best option. And in No, most but like it's spread around town, like, you know, like in this case. Yeah, this guy's you... in New Mexico. He's good to go. Would you recommend just getting a... Uh, Restraining order. Thank you. Yeah, you could do that. Um, you could go to the police. You could make a report on some kind of threats or terroristic behavior or things of that nature. Be, get it well documented that this person's trying to do bad things to me. Um, and then, yeah, you could eventually get a restraining order. Um, in most states, if there was some kind of connection between you and them, and you could even get a protection order. So, just depends. What's the difference? Well, a protection order is to keep like cohabitating people or people that live in the same household away from each other. So you see that a lot in, you know, husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend. How would you even do that though if you're you're living with them? Well, you try to get out of the house and you go to the court and say, I want him removed or her removed from my house, and the order will have that in there. It will ban that person from anywhere coming anywhere near the house or the person. We serve them all day long. Those, those they're very frequent. Oh, are they frequent because they work or? Uh, no, they don't work. I mean, they're constructed to work and their intention is to work. But in so many cases, the abusee goes through that cycle of violence or domestic violence or whatever, and then goes back to the prosecutors and say. I want this drop because we're getting along now and we're okay now and whatever. And uh, some of those cases turn out to be pretty tragic. I've got a, a real, I don't even know what to call this. A fun question, I guess, for everybody. If you were on this jury, how would you vote? Well, it would be absolutely fact-based. So I'm sure the jury instruction to the jury was, do you objectively feel this guy was in danger? Would he have felt that he was in danger from the reasonable circumstances that were presented? And if all those circumstances are sufficient, I would say the jury would say, yes, he, I, he felt he was in danger. But does it matter how much danger he was in? Yeah, it, well, it, it matters how much danger he was in, whether the person who threatened him has the ability to carry out some kind of dangerous activity against them, whether they have the means, the wherewithal, the motive 
all of those things. And I think in this case, a lot of that stuff existed. Allie, what do you think? I'm with taps on this one. I don't, I don't think Mayor did anything super sketchy. I think it's unfortunate that wisdom reached like he was grabbing a gun. Man, I might be the odd one out here. I don't, I don't know. Something about not him not having a weapon really throws me off where it's like he wasn't in his life wasn't in danger. Even though he had threatened. And he had no, there was no time period to make that decision. When the coat comes back and he thinks he's reaching for a gun, there's no reaction time because if he doesn't act quickly and certainly, and the guy has a gun, he's dead. But that's all according to mayor himself. That's no one else witnessed that. Right. No, I agree. And the jury must have, one of the things that happens in a trial is the jurors measure the ability of the witness and whether they're telling the truth or not. I mean, they look them, that's why we have trials. They look them in the face, they hear the way they answer the questions, and they make up a judgment as, I think this guy is telling the truth, or I don't think this person is telling the truth. I I would feel like you, Beth, if he hadn't have made the threats and like town people didn't hear that too. Yeah, I get that. It's not, yeah, I totally understand the outcome. I just don't know how I would feel in the moment, I guess. Yeah. Anyways, any other final thoughts from anyone? I just don't think anybody in the jury back then would have used the word super sketch. (laughs) That can't be your final thought. (laughs) That's my final thought. All right, Tabs, thanks for joining. You're welcome. Oh, hello there. As a marketer, I hate promotions like this. Same and same. But I love content. Me too. So if you like our content, give us a like, follow, share, subscribe, note, fax, literally anything you think would help us continue making Daiwa a success. Thank you, thank you, thank you.